This is football. Bob Sturm joins me in a little bit to preview Cowboys 49ers. TJ Ward joins me to have a great discussion around the league and some great insight into his playing career. Um, I want to start with the Detroit Lions, who are about to go 4-1 and one this weekend because they're playing the Carolina Panthers. We know how that goes. And some of the lessons that we can take from resurrecting a franchise that historically seemed completely irrelevant, but then after the Matt Patricia era seemed even more so. Um, you don't think a franchise like the Lions could hurt any more than Matt Patricia comes in and everybody hurts a hundred times more. They didn't think it was possible. That's what happens when you make one bad hire. So Dan Campbell comes in and I think because of the kneecap stuff, because of the press conferences, some of the stuff he said, some of the stuff he was fine to say because he likes getting through to his team, all that stuff. He would say it at press conferences and we get confused in the media. There was a meathead narrative. You should never buy it ever about Dan Campbell. This is a guy who goes forward on fourth down because he learned from Sean Payton. Sean Payton, not a meathead. Um, but he understood that. And now, by the way, he didn't even want to do like fourth and one sneaks. He doesn't want to do tush push. Like Dan Campbell wants to run aggressive plays on short yardage and fourth down because Sean Payton taught him that the defense is terrified of that. Okay. That's just a small example. Toughness and whatever we call grit, all that stuff, always overrated as a concept in football. Important on a granular level. I'm going to explain in a second. But like Chuck Knoll, longtime Steelers coach, said that there's no such thing as toughness, really. It's just technique. It's just fundamentals. It's just being in shape, frankly, um, and just doing the same thing over and over. Repetitive process, and eventually you hang in there. That's a tough player. Over and over again, consistency. Um, if you're a – like. I, like if if toughness was all that matters, like we just trot out UFC fighters and be fine. No, it's about fundamentals and techniques, and that's toughness. And we confuse it sometimes. So anyway, um, there wasn't a meathead narrative. What there was was an identity, and I don't believe in like culture fit that that a coach has to fit a city. Dan Campbell has embraced Detroit. When I sat down with him a couple of years ago, he was literally tearing up thinking about the auto industry taking a dive and the housing bubble in 08 and all of the things that have befallen Detroit over the last few decades. He was literally tearing up over it. And he was saying basically that the lions were this punchline and that he wants, and, and he's from Texas. The Detroit reminded him a little bit of Texas with different accents or his part of Texas. Um, and that he wanted the people of Detroit know, to know that he knew their pain and he understood their pain and he wanted to help. And so that's a, that's a culture fit, but I think sometimes it doesn't matter. Um, what does matter is that Dan Campbell knew what kind of identity he wanted to have in a football team, and he stuck with it. There was so much skepticism over his draft. Gibbs, Campbell, Laporta, Branch. Building through the middle of the field, building at quote-unquote non-premium positions, had somebody really smart, Say, oh, you can't really come away with that many picks and not not have non-premium positions, you know, not have your premium position sorted out. Like I don't they knew what they were doing. And so instead of saying, okay, they're winning because it's a culture fit, or they oh, they have the best story, best story in football. What does that even mean? Lots of great stories in football. What they have is a plan and an identity 
and they know to build through their lines, through their front seven, um, big guys who can move at every single position. Um, this is a team that knows exactly what they're trying to do. And that's why I thought I've, the pendulum has swung for me many times on the draft. But after a couple of days, I was like, you know what? No, no, I, I like this. And I swung back and forth on it a couple time, a couple more times. But they know what they want. And Brad Holmes, their GM, said something to me a couple of year, a couple a year ago, excuse me, that I found interesting, which he said that they didn't mean to tear it down. They just kept making moves. And all of a sudden they've traded. Obviously, Matthew Stafford was was going to be traded immediately. But then they kept making these different moves. And it's like, OK, well, we've actually done a teardown. And the first year was going to be, and this is Brad Holmes talking, the HVAC year. Just just install the things you need to install. And then you start getting the, the chandelier and all that stuff, and then you start building. So that's what this is. That's the process now. They've got the house, and now they've get, they're getting the chandelier. They'll get the fancy mirror. They'll get the, the flat screen hung on the wall. That's what's happening right now. But I think that the lesson, if anything, is that they've known the entire time exactly how they were building and what their their identity needs to be. I think a lot of times you can get lost in, and I'm, I'm a big process guy, but you can get lost in, this guy's available at pick 60 and he shouldn't, let's take him. Um, they got a bunch of guys who can play, whether that's Aiden Hutchinson, um, whether that's the guys along, along the, the offensive line. Like they got a bunch of guys who can play. Um, Mark Warkentine, uh actually just passed not too long ago, uh, former NBA executive. When I was covering the Knicks, he said something to me that I think about all the time. And the numbers would change with, uh, with, with football, obviously. But he said in the NBA, it's nine guys in a first round who can play. Nine guys. And guess what? You can get them at any point in the first round because not every team is good at figuring out those nine guys. And there will be a team at six who takes the guy who just can't play. Why they do it? Eh, they, they, oh, we need, a, we, need a, we need a big – or, oh, we need a point guard. Well, there's only two good point guards. There's no point guard available. Like, blah, blah, blah. What the Lions have done is they've gotten guys who can play. And that's why I don't think you overthink the draft. That's why I think that you uh, have this sort of timeline where you understand what you are. This has been a very self-aware rebuild the whole time. And they know what they are. And that's the best thing you can say about a young football team. This is a very good team. And it looks like they're going to win the NFC North. Tickets to the game, merch, meals at iconic restaurants, stays at Caesars Palace. All this can be yours when you bet with Caesars Sportsbook. Win or lose, every bet earns reward credits, which you can redeem across the empire. Now, if you haven't started yet, use the code OmahaFull. And then... Place your first bet up to $1,250. If you win, great. You keep those winnings. But if you lose, you get your stake back as a bonus bet. 21 and up only. Offer valid and must be physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming only. New users and first $10 wager only. Must wager with eligible promo code Bet. Amount of qualifying wager return only if wager is settled as a loss. Maximum bonus bet $1,250. Bonus bet expires 14 days after receipt. Tier credits and reward credits will be added to account within seven days after qualifying wager settles. See Caesars.com slash promos for full terms. Void where prohibited. Know when to stop before you start. Gambling problem? Arizona? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. Colorado, Wyoming, Kansas? Affiliated with Kansas Crossing Casino? Call 1-800-522-4700. Indiana? Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. 
Iowa, call 1-800-BETS-OFF. Louisiana, call 1-877-770-STOP. Licensed through Horseshoe, Bossier City, and Hannah's New Orleans. Maine, call 1-800-327-5050 or visit gamblinghelplinema.org. Michigan, call 1-800-270-7117. Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, affiliated with Harris, Philadelphia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-888-427-426-2537 or West Virginia. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. All right, Bob Sturm, Cowboys expert. I just subscribed to his Substack stack uh, this morning and I read... As many articles as I could. Um, he's very, very, very good. Uh, he's charging eight bucks a month. But, but Bob, I was reading it and I was going, I could go nine here. I, this is we got third down breakdowns here. We got Dak Prescott tape study. We're giving out offensive line player of the week. Like this is good stuff, Bob. Thank you. We're no, we're trying. We're hustling. Uh, the I was cut for the first time in my life this summer, so I, I got to be humbled and uh, build it all over again. Uh, the athletic made a mistake. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, but let's talk about Cowboys versus Niners. Um, early, and it's funny because we just have the Dolphins and the Bills, so we can't. Well, let's not go overboard on game of the year stuff. But in the NFC, certainly this is a good litmus test. I think that we, I thought the Cowboys were the best team in the NFC. They lay that egg against the Cardinals, and all these Niner fans come at me and say, "Where is your God now?" Um, and and last week there was a little bit of a return of normalcy. I felt okay about it, but let's just. Let's just settle it. Who's better right now on Sunday? Um, I want to start here. Dak Prescott to you this season is showing you what? Because there's a couple of things. Number one is for me, and the reason I picked the Cowboys to win the NFC is that if Dak Prescott is your problem, that is a wonderful problem to have. If tipped interceptions are your problem, that is a wonderful thing to have. I felt all these things could be worked out. Um, you wrote a little bit about his uh, the third down efficiency and, and just the metrics and the uh, different areas he was thriving this year. He is showing you what this year, Bob? Well, he's 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 playing a, a pretty solid point guard, which yeah. uh, is 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 kind of the way the NFL is going in a lot of cities where they're asking their quarterback to do less high wire acts and and more just get the ball out to the playmakers quickly on time, uh, on location, and and just kind of let that happen as it goes. Now it's a little weird, Kevin, to see the average depth of target of his throws down so far. Like they are hammering the flats. And uh, obviously, Mike McCarthy veterans will uh, giggle at that possibility that uh, that that's uh, that's where they're attacking the flats. But, um, you know, it, it's it's a little bothersome that uh, the Arizona game happened. It's a little bothersome that they're so bad in the red zone so far. But I, I, I don't really get caught up in the uh, sample size abnormalities that some do. It's 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 a couple weeks. And and we know that, uh, you know, a normal game, you're in the red zone four times, maybe five. And, and so it, it takes one game to correct that this time of year. Uh, but maybe the biggest one is that Brandon Cooks was supposed to be a solution to many of their problems, and he's hardly been used so far. So as we look back at the playoff game last year in 2022, I think the takeaway for me was those two turnovers killed him. Uh, the lack of any turnovers from the 49ers uh, killed them, aside from a special teams bobble. And uh, more than anything, it looked like C.D. Lamb versus the world, especially after Tony Pollard got hurt around the two-minute warning of the first half. The rest of the offense was 
uh, CD Lamb, CD Lamb, CD Lamb. Nobody else could get open. Michael Gallup was useless. Dalton Schultz was uh, very ordinary. Zeke, uh, obviously, no burst. So, so they were down to CD Lamb. And the premise was, okay, assemble playmakers, Capante Turpin here, Deuce Vaughn here. But Brandon Cooks is your is your code number one or at least a really solid number two. And, and so far, unless it's all a, a ruse to prepare for a trip to Santa Clara, uh, we're, we're pretty underwhelmed with what Brandon Cooks has done so far or how they've used him, I should say. You mentioned the average depth of target. I didn't think that's a league-wide thing, as you alluded to. Like, I mean, that was Joe Burrow last year. They took away the deep ball. And, and okay, well, Tyler Boyd and Hayden Hurst were open over the middle every single throw, right. um, and they'll take the 20 yards. And so I think that's just that that's, you know, we saw that again last year with the Bengals, this year with a bunch of teams. I mean, some of the dot around the league is just absolutely astounding. I mean, yes. the, the game the game is literally changing. Um, do you think it's more than that? Do you think that's, that's McCarthy just saying, let's just keep everything in front of us, don't take chances down the field? You mentioned, obviously, Cooks would be that vertical threat. He's hardly been used. Um, do you read into it other than league trend? The the only read would be me overanalyzing Dak Prescott as a uh, the ability to kind of not hear the noise because I I do think that's what's made him a really solid candidate to be a Cowboys quarterback is you have to have the ability to hear that everything's your fault but just kind of know that it's not but uh, it, it's probably like being U.S. president no matter what what happens when you're in office it's going to land on your desk and uh, if you're the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys and him and Tony Romo have have been compared and and uh, it's a tug of war it's it, it, you know people go on and on about who is better and and everyone got their faction but in the end they're the same guy because they're both the stewards of this franchise that has spent 10,000 days in the desert without a Super Bowl and until somebody can break that or at least at least threaten an NFC championship game let's start with making a final four when that happens he'll stop being blamed for everything but uh until that time I, I think you almost have to block out the world and and but but at a certain point, your 30th birthday, you're hearing that everything's your fault. You led the NFL in interceptions, even though that number was was uh, terribly uh, uh, misleading, I thought. Uh, but whatever, you know. Um, so, so is he playing it extra safe? Is he just trying to quiet the haters? Uh, if that's the case, we got a real problem because this job is so much more complex than that. But, uh, but I do wonder, it's a very stark thing. His average career, his worst career year is just under eight, just a shade under eight. So, so to see them win these games so comfortably, but also very rarely go downfield at all uh i i you know i kind of wonder where the season's going to take us because uh after the jets game you felt great about where the offense is then the arizona game humbles you and uh you know the new england game was probably somewhere in the middle when you said you were going to overanalyze Dak Prescott, that's actually the first time anyone's ever overanalyzed Dak Prescott in media that's never happened before it's well, always been measured fresh ground yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, that was uh, that was extremely illuminating. Um, I'm going to give you the most basic pregame show question in the world, and you can take it wherever you want because you're much better at this than the people. Uh, a lot of people who are on TV about it. The Cowboys stack up how with the Niners, um, and we'll start with. I mean, obviously, I, I just saw a report that just uh, Micah Parsons and Debo Samuel will be less than 100. percent There's a lot of wiggle room within that. That could mean 30. percent That could mean 95. percent I don't know. That was Ian Rappaport's report. Um, but from a defensive perspective, let's go. Let's go. Cowboys defense, uh, Niners offense. Um, the things you've seen from the Niners this year 
they can do what to the Cowboys and the Cowboys can do what to stop it. Well, it's it. Well, that's 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 a great way, place to start. And of course, when we talk about Kyle Shanahan, there is a a mysticism about his ability to uh, to scheme guys uh, open, and and obviously that means uh, some some runs that are wide open. And so Arizona did show us with uh, pre-snap motion, with a lot of pretty good ideas on their schemed runs, that uh, they could use the Cowboys' speed against them. And uh, I, I think that's a big deal. The Cowboys are built on speed. They they would love to play. If there's something more extreme than dime, they want to do it, Kevin. They, <laughs> they want 11 defensive backs on the field. That, they can my, do my, Micah Parsons plus 10, basically. Yes. And so the 49ers are exactly the team to punish that with a full-time fullback and, a, and obviously George Kittle. And so, you know, they're, they're a team that you would think would say, okay, you want to play a 205-pound linebacker? Let's let's go. Let's see about this. So I expect the 49ers are going to lean into a lot of what the Cardinals were able to discover, where the Cowboys are trying to switch with pre-snap motion. Okay, extra gap here. Uh, is everybody on the same page? Well, no. Everyone wasn't on the same page, and Rondale Moore is running down the field for, uh, for four, a 45-yard touchdown. So that's what we all expect from the 49ers. We, I went back and watched the playoff game yesterday, and and I just I, I was very impressed with the Cowboys' ability to harness Christian McCaffrey uh, to kind of make sure that run game didn't get carried away. And they really had very few, if any, blown assignments. Where the Cowboys' defense uh, is set up for the 49ers, and, and really on both sides of the ball, I think Mike McCarthy has made it his mission to make sure that the Cowboys can win a street fight in the trenches with the 49ers. And I think in that playoff game, down for down, they did a great job. I thought the Cowboys were not bullied. I thought the Cowboys stood their ground, won the line of scrimmage a lot of times. Now, they lost a few because the 49ers are good. But I, I think the 49ers, going all the way back to 2019, Kevin, they set this benchmark of we are going to absolutely kick your tail physically when you play us, especially at our place. And, you know, that 2019 NFC Championship game against Green Bay is the best example you can think of. Is It was just a mauling. And you can believe Mike McCarthy was in his barn uh, watching that that day uh, and, and saying, the next team I have, this, this is the benchmark of physicality. Philadelphia has much the same in the trenches. And so if we're going to deal with those two teams, we've got to be able to stand up physically. The Cowboys did that. Where they went wrong, they had their hands on three different uh, passes from Brock Purdy mm -hmm. that were tipped, deflected, chance for an interception. This defense has to make plays. They have to get the football. They're number one in takeaways under Dan Quinn. That day they got zero except that special team's punt return. And uh, the defense did a great job until – they were on the field so much, and in the fourth quarter, Brock Purdy put together a 10-play drive and a 13-play drive. Obviously, very little Purdy, a lot more of the running game, but the point is they couldn't get off the field when it counted. They couldn't get a takeaway. So I realize the history books will put this all on Dak Prescott's two interceptions, but the defense kind of let them down in that second half, and I, I thought that playoff game is aging really well for both sides. It was a war, Kevin. I completely agree with you. Um, so you had had a piece, I think, over the summer, maybe in the spring with Ted Wynn, where you talked about Kellen Moore and the changes at offense, not only with Dallas, but with, with Los Angeles. And it feels like, to me, red zone issues aside, and I, I could not believe after the Arizona game, all the people saying, Dallas really misses Kellen Moore. Okay, right. it was like a series of five plays. We're going to be fine here, okay? Mm -hmm. um, but it feels like 
a move that works for both sides because it feels like Justin Herbert is more comfortable in that offense. Um, You guys sort of poked holes in the idea that he would help Herbert downfield just because Kellen Moore did a lot of stop routes and and it was still a lot of Linehan Garrett type of stuff that they were running. Um, But having said that, um, the Dallas offense is different. Um, and I'm curious if you could take me through the difference between, and obviously McCarthy's been there for, for, for a couple of years now, but the difference between the McCarthy Schottenheimer offense and the Kellen Moore offense. Well, it's, it, it's certainly an evolving process. And, yeah. and so I, I don't want to necessarily marry myself to the idea that we've seen everything, but I, I think the idea of Dak Prescott playing on time is the number one thing. There was a story in training camp that I absolutely could not believe. And I believe it was a Jory Epstein story about how the Cowboys were marrying the footwork of their quarterback to the footwork and the route timing of their wide receivers. Kevin, this is high school. It's all <laughs> 101. And Michael Gallup has a quote where he is saying, and he was a 2019 draft pick, I want to say, yeah. maybe 2018. He was saying this is the first time the Cowboys have taught timing on these basic footwork you know, the idea that when Dak's back foot hits the top of the drop, I have to be ready for the, the slant or I have to be ready for the dig. And, and you know, again, this is this is uh, high school Harry to uh, yep. quote J.T. O'Sullivan. And, and, and just the idea that, uh, the, you know, the Kellen Moore offense didn't really teach that sort of thing. I find that hard to believe. But whatever the case is, uh, going back to your question, I think it's two things. I think it's playing on time. Very basic stuff, but get the ball out. Don't uh, stand back there and wait for a better option. You never go broke taking a profit. That's item number one. Item number two, I believe they they became extremely frustrated with the great numbers, the great offensive rankings. But by the time we got to Thanksgiving, the last two seasons, 2021, 2022, these are 12-win Cowboy teams. Very good teams. Nothing wrong with their offensive statistics. But December 1st of both years, their ability to run the football on running situations, first and 10, second and whatever, they just could not do it. And and Mike McCarthy doesn't want to live in that world. The Jones family, of course, going back to Emmett and, and the Great Wall of Dallas or whatever in the 90s don't want to live in that world. So they were putting so much pressure on Dak for third and 10 that they knew we have to use this offensive line who we have spent nothing but first round picks and nothing but, you know, 20 minute, 20 million a year on, on each guy. It seems like uh, if we can't get four yards on first and 10, when we declare run, uh, what are we even doing here? So I think they put a lot of that on Kellen Moore, Terrence Steele blowing out his knee didn't help last year, but they want to be able to run when they want to run. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, and that's, there's a floor there as long as you can run the ball with the good offensive line and, and everything else is, is, uh, is obviously on deck, but, um, I guess let's let's flip it a little bit. Um, yes. You mentioned the the San Francisco defense, um, and I guess like, are you seeing this as you know? You mentioned the the in in your Substack this morning. You mentioned the ten factors that determine um, offensive success, and that's third mm-hmm. down stuff, that's red zone stuff, um, yes, and obviously, and like for me. Like I, I know this is so reductive. I just look at yards per attempt and just figure out if you're a good team or not. And I work sure. backwards from there. Um, but there's a lot of different metrics. Um, how much stock are you putting into a game in early October for the Cowboys offense to prove that they can beat this this uh, this mauling physical Niners defense? Is this is this like okay? I am I'm putting a ton of stock in this, or is this kind of what we've heard from some of the pregame shows, which is the first six weeks is kind of a extended preseason now, kind of a mulligan? Like, are you? I know again, talk radio. You know, nine nine a.m. on a on a. Cable channel question 
are you reading into this and putting a ton of stock in this game? Well, I am, but I will also uh, add on to that the the idea that if the Cowboys win this game, uh, they will the damage of losing this game, or at least looking bad offensively, is much bigger. Yes, than the, than the benefits of winning this game. If they win this game, it won't be ten minutes after the game that people will say, "Well, let's see them do it in January." <laughs> so, so this will merely uh, extend the conversation. It won't end it. Uh, on the other hand, if they go in there and score twelve points like they did in January when it did yeah. matter, uh, yeah, that's going to be a, a massive. What did we get rid of Kellen Moore? Uh, why didn't we hire Sean Payton? Although that it's amazing what a seventy burger will do to quiet the Sean. Peyton apologists in Dallas, but whatever. Uh, hey, it's a it's a tough league, but but <laughs> when they when they uh, get mad in the city, uh, and like I said, ten thousand days is a lot of days uh, since Troy and Emmett and Michael were running the world, uh, and and so when 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 things go bad, it's it's invariably the coach's fault and the quarterback's fault. That's not unique to just this market, I realize, but this market has some real. Uh, I don't want to say mental illness, but they 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 have they have some go to moves mentally to cope with uh, the thirty years in the desert, and so uh, the stakes are very high if it doesn't go right. But if it does go right, the stakes are very low because uh, we've seen big wins in October before. So you know it's 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 sports talk radio is healthy uh, in this market <laughs> because uh, because the Cowboys uh, drive people crazy and and so it's a it's a showdown game but uh, you know the stakes are only as high as uh, until they play the Eagles a couple weeks later. Exactly right. Um, it's funny because I didn't even think about what an Elvis is. The season has been for the Sean Payton to Dallas Truthers because I mean not only I, I don't even, this was obviously fans this was media but like. The other part of the Sean Payton to Dallas pipe dream was that nobody in the NFL thought he wanted to take the job because their whole thing was one thing Sean loved about New Orleans is ownership would check in like once a year and he got to do whatever he wanted to. All of a sudden he's going to watch film with Jerry Jones on a, yeah. on a Monday and Tuesday and tell him what's going on and, and talk through his decision to, to what, what he's doing with the pulling guard. Like that was never going to happen. And he's flopping in Denver. Like what an L for the Sean Payton to Dallas people. No, but I'll give Sean Payton this. He, uh, like few other people, he has massively understood how to use Jerry Jones for leverage. And, and <laughs> uh, he's done that for 20 years. You know, the flirting with Jerry Jones since he left uh, from Bill Parcell's staff in 2005 to take the Saints job. Ever since, it has been a constant, you know, uh, photo op here or uh, flirtation there or feed this to the NFL insiders uh, more so here that, uh, hey, this Dallas thing. And the whole time it was to either get a better deal with the Saints, get a TV deal, get a deal with the Broncos. So, so again, with all of us hustling in life to uh, try to, to make ends meet, I have to credit Sean Payton in, in sort of teaching the class on how to fake interest in a place to drive up your own price. So I, I heard some of the beat writers around the time of the Trey Lance trade, and I promise it's not a Trey Lance specific question, um, <laughs> but around that time about how basically like sometimes the scouting department or Steven or whomever just wants to give Jerry a win, you know, and let's give, let's give Jerry a win. He, he really likes Trey Lance. Let's just do it. Um, that's why they didn't involve some of the other folks in the organization, whatever. Um, Jerry's, and obviously Jerry runs everything and Jerry is the GM and all of this stuff. But like, has Jerry's role changed in the last couple years at all? Um, is he still 
this driving force? Is he more involved, less involved? Has he, I mean, obviously everybody remembers the, the Johnny taking the draft card away for the Johnny Manziel thing. Has he changed at all in the last couple of years as a football czar? I, I, I want to say yes. I want to say yes. At the same time, he makes sure that he's still ever present. And uh, it's it's insane how many times he talks to the media every week and how in Dallas we've all said, well, that's totally normal. And everybody in every other market says that's not normal at all for the owner to have like two radio shows and uh, a, a, a deal where he's talking to the media in the locker room after games. Now he's been doing it for so long that again, maybe the 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 shock and and even the ramifications of it are are much lower than than we give credit to. But but he is still he is still most interested in in being on center stage as uh, hey look at what I've done and look at what I've built. To the organization's immense credit. They are now a fully functioning football operation that seldom makes massive mistakes. They are a homegrown roster. They have continued to find uh, players in the margins that have made a massive difference. Terrence Steele uh, was last year's success story. I think this year's success story has to be Deron Bland if he can maintain filling in for Trayvon Diggs. So you look up and down this roster, almost all of them are career Dallas Cowboys who they found, they drafted, they signed undrafted or whatever and developed and so it's a little easier to deal with jerry the the master of ceremonies of the three ring circus <laughs> when when the roster makes intuitive sense they still screw up like the dak prescott negotiations and end up yeah. paying him way more or the zeke you know there are still those high-end high price tag mistakes that still hurt and uh, definitely cause uh, kappa uh you know pain but um it, it does seem like the rank and file uh, football operation is is a very competitive and frankly sustainable situation to where I anticipate this will be their third straight playoff appearance this year and and it just now kind of looks like McCarthy and Green Bay in that they win their home games regularly Jason Garrett couldn't do that they they win after they lose regularly they're nine and one in the last couple of years under McCarthy so this is a resilient football operation that does not uh, does not intersect nearly as much with the glitz and glamour of uh, Cowboys football. Real quick, you mentioned uh, Bland, the Diggs def- uh, the Diggs injury changes the defense how. And was that do we put the Arizona thing just in the shock of of losing Diggs and coming out flat a little bit? I I think they I think they needed to be reminded that every Sunday you better be ready. You better yeah, exactly. a little bit. And and I, I can't believe you need to teach that lesson in week three. Uh, I'd like to think uh, you can get out of the gates uh, a couple weeks before you start believing what they're saying about you. But I, I just felt like that looked like an, a defense that, that didn't pay much attention into uh, preparation for what the Cardinals were going to do. And, and I think the Cardinals are much better schemed up than I ever imagined. So I have to give them credit that their offense actually looks like uh, it's not being run by a moron. Uh, so congratulations on that. Congratulations. <laughs> but, Arizona uh, Cardinals. But, uh, you know, I mean, uh, just in general, not having Trayvon Diggs is huge. I mean, he's a very, very good man coverage corner. The Cowboys want to run cover one all day long or at least single high 
cover one, cover three, and uh, not having digs, that can really hurt. We think Stephon Gilmore can still really play. We think Deron Bland can be a good outside corner. But in fairness, it's not like the Cowboys have played a bunch of teams that love to test them through the air. So I do think after this showdown, the next week they'll play at Los Angeles on Monday Night Football against uh, Justin Herbert and the Chargers. And I know Mike Williams isn't there, but I am interested in what a quarterback that loves to go vertical can actually do. And maybe with Kellen Moore just wants to try to run up the score on the Cowboys uh, for spite. One more talk show question. We'll get you out of here. Prediction for Sunday night. Man, I, I, I think, um, I, I think you would be crazy to not pick the Niners the, with the form they're in. Uh, but I, I do think this is one of those games where it, it, it will be a field goal either way. And I do think, unlike last year's playoff game, the Cowboys will have a kicker this time. Uh, I'm not <laughs> saying he's a great one, but I am saying he could probably hit all of his extra points. So who knows what this could do to uh, this battle. They'll have Tyler Smith at left guard, Terrence Steele at right tackle. They didn't have either of those in those spots uh, last year in the playoff game. So I, I think the Cowboys are going to give the 49ers a real test. And uh, I'll, I'll just do the NFL media thing and just pick the home team be in a close game because why not, right? <laughs> Bob Sturm, thank you so much, man. Appreciate the time. I love being out with you. All right, TJ Ward joins us, Super Bowl champion, 2013, all-pro, three-time pro bowler, all-rookie team in 2010. A lot of accomplishments here, TJ. What's going on, man? What's going on? How are you? I'm doing great. You got the Ducks jersey over your shoulder. I will not talk college football, even though I want to. This is an NFL show. Um, we're going to start here. Um, you still are tapped into the game. Best defensive back in football right now is who? I think corner, i say right now, is probably Slay. I think Slay made some big plays this season. Uh, probably one of the better defenses. He's always around the football for sure. And he's he can shut down. Like he's, You know, sometimes you have the corner that either the shutdown type or the interception type, right? Uh, I think he's a little bit of both. So I think he's the best corner right now. Um, it's tough to say. Safety. Maybe Harrison. I think he had like four sacks last week, like three sacks, something crazy. I think yeah. Harrison Smith is playing very well right now. Um, yeah, I think that that'll go with those two safety and corner. Hey, what's the difference? You may, I know you didn't play corner, you played safety, but what's the difference when you, you mentioned the there's an interception type of cornerback and a shutdown type of cornerback? Um, is that just guys who are more likely to take chances, that kind of thing? Like when, when you're seeing that, what what is the difference between that that those two types of players? Yeah, I say it's um guys that are willing to take a little bit more chances on um finding the ball and um putting themselves in positions to make those plays. Whereas like the shutdown guy, he's just going to usually be very smart about his, about the game and don't take too many chances. He's more concerned with, you know, stopping everything, no balls getting caught where I feel like the interception guy is willing to give up a few catches to get that interception. So, um, you know, it really depends because, you know, interceptions and turnovers definitely win games, but, lack of catches and touchdowns when you don't have <laughs> so you know it's it's really a numbers game but um you know anytime you can have a corner that take away one side of the field is a blessing anyway so who is the best corner you ever played with probably Akeem Talib yeah yeah I'll probably say Talib for sure I mean he has the best numbers I think 
student of the game wise and um overall mentality, work ethic, everything um to lead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to get to those Broncos teams a little bit later, but I want to um, ask you one question. People were talking about the Dolphins offense and how it puts pressure on the safeties because there's so much motion. You have to communicate so much. And I want to start with the most basic thing, which is the motion that they're doing. Um, it almost, I've heard people say it's almost cheating because they're moving towards the line of scrimmage um, <laughs> after they should be. Um, but motion, especially that motion with Tyreek Hill, with Jalen Waddle when he's in there, um, with all that speed there, with the guys out of the backfield, with Tua getting it, getting rid of it so quickly, that kind of motion specifically puts what kind of pressure on the defense, TJ? Uh, it's more just communication and reaction type of pressure, doing things on the fly. I think for defenses, actually not I think, I know you have to be anticipating what they're going to do. So pre-snap, you got to be out there like, hey, expect this, if this happens, just in case type scenarios. But for a coordinator, I just make it simplify. I simplify my defense. I play zone. I keep my corners from traveling all the time unless it was absolutely necessary. Um, I slide my linebackers. I wouldn't be having them changing and flipping from Mike to Will and Sam and all that other type of things. Uh, I really keep my defense pretty basic and, you know, let them make the mistake. Who was the king of motion during your career on an offensive side of the ball? I mean, obviously Shanahan and that and the McVay crew was was obviously in the game at that point. But like, was there a team where you're just like, what the hell is that? Like just so much motion um, that it was it was almost hard to keep up. Well, you know, we got it a lot when I was in Denver just because of how stout we were on defense. So teams knew that they couldn't line up right in front of us and play ball. So they would try to, you know, catch us off guard or try to get some type of uh, mental miscommunication on our end. So we got a lot of motions from everybody. But I'll probably say the Patriots are one of the heaviest motioning teams at that time. And the Chiefs. For yep, sure, they still did a lot of motion back then as well. But, yeah, I'll put those two at the top. We almost do this every show um, when we have a player like you have gone, gone against. You mentioned the Patriots and their offense. Like, guarding to, or going against a Tom Brady defense where he's making adjustments to the line, understanding uh, pretty much every wrinkle of your defense. Um, give me a story about going against Tom Brady and what – people wouldn't understand unless they were on that field. He knows everyone on your defense, so he can call you out by name. Um, <laughs> he's definitely called me out. I mean, I am I feel like I'm a player, and I've been a player that stands out on the defense, so every quarterback better know my name because I'm coming. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm coming, but, like, he'll sit there and be like, hey, TJ, he's the mic, he's the mic, watching, watching, like, it's like, nah, Tom, and we'll be talking back and forth because I play a lot of dime as well in that position. But, you know, he's a, he's just an ultimate competitor, man. It's hard, very hard to play against him and not respect what he does. So, um, but, you know, it's just it, I think he shows every – he's not very a secretive person about who he is right. as a player. Like, he wears his emotions on his sleeve. You know, they already always have him mic'd up or telling you what he's saying on the field. So – no, just that that competitive, that that just drive spirit, whatever you want to call it, is is it's pretty special. Um, all right, let's get to that those Broncos teams. Um, you mentioned simplifying the defense and all that stuff. You had a legendary defensive coordinator in Wade Phillips. Um, 
let's start here. What made him, what made that defense so special and what made Wade Phillips the best possible coordinator for it? You know, we just had a bunch of compatible players um, from older vets to rookies. And I think we just merged and worked together very well. And Coach Wade did a great job of handling, and, and all the position coaches did a great job of handling those personalities within the rooms and making them work together. And Coach Wade is the ultimate player coach. So, you know, he has a plan and um, – you know, an idea of what he wants to do as a coordinator and as a coach, but he definitely opens his ears and lends them to, you know, what we feel will work best as well. So it's not just like, um, I'm a decoder, this is my plan, this is what we're running, let's go. It's like, okay, this is what I put together, this is what me and the coaches feel will work. How do y'all feel about it? What do you think it works? Should we do this? You know, or those just different type of those um, questions that, as a player, especially as an older player, you respect because you're on the field. So you know what works and won't work, right? So getting that or being allowed to get that input to a coach um, is very important. And I think, you know, they all the coaches took, you know, our criticism of them as well as, you know, we took their criticism of us in certain, you know, phases. So, you know, there was no huge egos in that room. And if there were, there was another huge ego to humble it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> <laughs> it just was perfect timing. All right. So we're going to get to Peyton stories. We love Peyton here at Omaha. He is, he is the boss, uh, one of the bosses. Um, let's start here. First time you meet Peyton Manning, when did you know he was a different dude? Because we've all seen the photos of him in the hot tub, watching the iPad, all of the preparation that goes into it. You learned Peyton Manning was a different type of quarterback when, TJ? I learned that when it was our first team meeting in camp. Um, everybody's introducing themselves, players go, and then staff and um, coaches, front office, Elway. And then after everyone speaks, Peyton goes <laughs> talks after everyone. I knew it was different just because, like, you know, the, the man is usually saved for the last talk, right? The owner or the president or CEO, whatever of the corporation, whatever the case might be. But to have your quarterback um, kind of wrapping up the meeting and sending everybody off and, you know, telling the plans for the season and everything, it was a little different for me. So that was kind of my intro to the sheriff. It's like, okay, uh, he's really got that kind of pool. Like, and he's really that figure within the building to everyone, not just to the players. So, that was great. That was pretty, that was pretty cool. What's your best Peyton Manning story? You know, I think for me, it's just him coming up to me, curious about what I saw and yeah. different things like that. Like him picking my brain about different aspects of the game, which was humbling for sure. It's like, damn, this is Peyton Manning. He's been best quarterback in a year in, in, in the league since I was in high school, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty much. And you know, him still wanting to learn, him still wanting to see or know what I saw, what made me do this, what did he do to um, tip that off and different things like that was is very humbling. And, like, it just brought me to a, a level of understanding that there's always more to learn, you know, in this game, no matter how good you are, what level you reach, like, there's always more to learn. It just seems like um... – 
his preparation was legendary and i'm sure that everybody in the building probably saw that all the time just again i know he wasn't obviously always in the hot tub reading the ipad but like there's always a level of him trying to prepare in a different way you got the fun page man you know you got Hayden that's dancing and practice we had we used to always play practice i mean play music before um practice doing warm-ups and some guys getting dance competitions it's usually like vaughn or Somebody, I don't know, Wes Walker would get up and just fooling around. Peyton would get up every once in a while, and he was dancing one time. It was probably one of the worst dance moves i ever seen in my life. Oh, no. <laughs> he was, like, doing the twist and some more other crazy stuff. I'm like, oh, my goodness. It's crazy. We found <laughs> the one thing Peyton Manning was bad at in his career. Oh, man, you got to see it, man. It's not good. But <laughs> 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 but it's good that you get, you're trying to get involved, right? Yeah, no, nah, but that, yeah, I mean, like, those couple years, I was there for three years, but really yeah. the, the two the two years, my first year and my second year were when we had Peyton before he left, and it was probably more, some of the most fun I've had playing football. Like, period. It was, it was a great time. It was a great time. What was your favorite game in that era um, where you guys were just dominating? Not not counting the Super Bowl, obviously, but there were so yeah. many like Sunday night games where it was just like, dude, nobody can hang with these guys. Um, one of my favorite games just off of production and what we did was Monday night against Green Bay. Yep. When they came in and A-Rod was on fire. We told him what we were going to do and we did it. And he looked probably like, I think he had like 60 yards passing. It was something crazy. Like we shut the ass down. We would just play man pretty much the whole time. And we lined up across the board, manned up, and they couldn't do anything. It was just like the greatest display of one side's will and you know, power strength over another side's like they couldn't do anything. And it was just um, it was definitely satisfying and like it put a kind of another level of confidence on our defense. Like, look what we just did to this number one offense, one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. We lined up, we told them what we were going to do, and we did it. It's like we can't be touched, and nobody touches. <laughs> like it was like that. That's a that security. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do some rapid fire. Um, just going through a bunch of th- different things. Um, we'll start here. If someone said to you, and I'll, I'll say now, someone says to you, what was the most emblematic moment of how dysfunctional the Browns were when you were there? You would played for a bunch of different head coaches, obviously revolving to a quarterback. Uh, what stands out, TJ? Um, the revolving door quarterback. Three head coaches in four years, two GMs in four years, two owners in four years. Uh, like the, the that's about as dysfunctional as it gets. Uh, firing the coach on the way on the bus to the last game. Um, yeah, that would probably be it. Not, yeah, that'll probably be it. Is it impossible? I know you had a great career, but like it almost seems impossible to play well in those situations. Is it when a franchise is that dysfunctional and the Browns um, are not that anymore? There are other franchises that are close to that. uh, Maybe that that era of Browns football now, but like 
Is that a distraction when everything seems to be on fire around you? Well, good for me. I was young at that time, so I was really ignorant to a lot of the business of the NFL. I'm really just worried about yourself. You're a rookie, you're a sophomore, you know, you're trying to get to better places. But when I got into year three and four, it really became distraction. It became hard to go to work. It was just like, like I'm out here, I'm playing well. Some of my teammates are playing very well. We're giving it 100%, and I, we don't feel that reciprocated from the owner, the GM, no one else is like, no one else is trying to get this train on the right track. And it's very frustrating. Every week you come to the locker room, you're losing, you're answering questions of why you're losing. And it's like, why are you asking the players of why we're losing when you know the obvious answer is not the players? Okay, so stop asking. It's just very frustrating. And then you get, um, you just get, you know, almost in a shell for people around you, the media and everybody else is because you're consistently losing. You might go into other NFL environments with other teams and it's just like, you even look to, oh, you played for the Browns. Like, uh, like you know, it's, it takes a little toll on you, man. I'm not going to lie. It takes a toll. Like, yeah, it's not a good thing to lose all four years, bro. It sucks. I, I can imagine. How did it take a while for you to get that Obviously, you're not going to get losing into your DNA. You obviously went, you won a damn Super Bowl after that. But like, after coming from that environment, does it take a little bit just to get the rust off? You're like, okay, this is I'm playing for a normal NFL franchise now. Um, no, nah, not for me because I have a nah, my track record of my, my the, the schools and the, the, the yep. organizations I've always played with have been winners. So I'm that loser. I'm not used to it. I've never done it. So I've never lost anything in my life. So coming to the Browns and being a consistent loser, I was like, I'm not used to this at all. So, <laughs> nah, like I said, when I got feel comfortable, I felt like a staple on the team and in the organization. I start, I'm an opinionated person. I started voicing my opinion about things going on. And, you know, it didn't change. But, yeah. I had to let I had to let it be know how I felt because I don't not comfortable with losing and I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm cool with it. So this is what you guys can know about me. And if people around me want to act like this is cool and um, we'll get ready for next year, next game. Nah, that's just that's a terrible mentality to have. What was it? What was this like? What did you say and who did you say it to? Um, no, I mean, I think it was one game we just had got beat. And uh, I just was – I think it may have been my last year there. I don't know. I was just like, I'm tired of losing. We do the same thing every week. Um, this ain't cool. I, I know the fans are sick of it. I've been here four years, and it's not like we even trying to win almost. Like, we bringing in guys that are on their last leg of their careers. Just no type of, like – and then when we did get to that point, we fired our coach. Like, we got to a point of we were building something special. I felt we had a top five defense. Our D coordinator was excellent. I loved him. Head coach was great. Everyone loved him. And we only won five games that year, but you could tell we were a couple pieces, maybe a quarterback, because we were floating through quarterbacks that year. We played with Jason Campbell and somebody else. We played with – and it was like – but the defense, we were – we were stern. It was a it was a great base to build on. 
going forward, and they just cut the coach and kicked everybody to the curb. Like, like this is stupid. I don't want to be here anyway. Like, this is terrible. Um, best quarterback duel you ever had was there i mean you mentioned tom brady earlier but like is there is was there a back and forth with a quarterback that you just really enjoyed in your career from a playing standpoint or a verbal standpoint maybe philip rivers oh he's a quarterback that talks got a couple of interceptions off of him um nah i really I, I don't what what did what did rivers say when uh when you picked him off, or what's what's that verbal battle back back and forth? I've heard I've heard he can get after. No, nah, he talks more with Chris. I really don't say too much to Philip. I don't have I don't have relationships with quarterbacks. I really don't say too much to him. Um, Mike Brady, I might say something too because yeah. he's from the Bay. Uh, a Rod, <laughs> he's from NorCal. If I kind of feel like there's a tie there, I might talk to you, um, Andrew Luck. Yeah, probably was one of my favorite quarterbacks. I say, oh yeah, Andrew Luck. We had a lot of communication. He's a great quarter. He's a great dude. Well, Andrew Luck is funny, man. I played him since college, so I was used to it when we got to the league. Like when we played against when I was at Oregon and he was at Stanford, he'd do the same thing: take hits, you know, be that big juggernaut type quarterback that sit in the pocket and could run and you know just be strong. Uh, strong guy in the pocket and you hit him and he'd be like, Oh man, TJ good hit. Yep. <laughs> like, what the f <laughs> he like they'd get it, hit him again and you know, only thing you want him to do is get up and not say anything. Like, and that's a win. If he just get up and go back to the huddle like, ah, you'd be like, all right, cool, I got him. But most of the time he's gonna compliment you on how you came and how you rushed him. So no, no type of uh, bad will situation towards the quarterback, but Andrew Luck is probably, yeah, that type of talk relationship I had with a quarterback where I was going back and forth with him during the game. Who is the uh, Philip Rivers and Chris okay. Harris? Always, they were always talking. Philip and and, and Strat, they are always talking back and forth. Uh, hardest player to ever tackle in your career? Uh, Jamal Charles is one for sure. Um, probably Percy Harvin and Frank Gore. All right, let's go through each of those. Um, how did how did Frank Gore run? I mean, just like legs moving all the time. Frank Gore just has great feet, and he has a tremendous center of gravity, so he stays right and like linear to himself. So he makes his moves, and he can be under shoulder pads, he can be lateral, and he just has great feet and power so even if you get a hold of him he might run through it <laughs> uh percy harvin was just he could do everything yeah like, percy I, harvin was just so fast and his ability to stop and go was very special and then jamal charles was just he, he could do everything too he's just, yeah, he just vicious man he's fast as lightning he can cut on a dime he can catch the ball out the backfield um, his top end speed was top three in the league, and he could, he's a physical back, like he could, you know, take contact on them shoulder pads and bounce right off of them and keep going as well. So, yeah, I think he's very underrated as an all time back, which is crazy. I agree. Um, last thing for TJ, we do a thing called badasses. 
it's the most badass person you ever played with. A lot of times that could be a guy who just didn't care about injuries or a guy who would just lay the hit after, you, you know, you when, when nobody else would or a guy who was doing a job that nobody else wanted to do. Doesn't matter. The most badass guy you've ever played with on any team is who, TJ? Probably one of them for sure would be Haloti Nada in college. Like, oh, that dude. <laughs> it was like the immovable object, but a freight train because he would run. He ran so fast. He was agile. Ain't nobody messing with Haloti. Like nobody. I ain't nobody. Haloti. Excuse my French, but like, no, you know, do I don't care where he's at. Who team? You're not messing with him, who you are. So he's definitely, like, just of his presence, his mass, his size, like, and his ability. He's He may just be one, period. Like, yeah, I'll probably say hello to like, you. Did you see anybody try to F with him in college? No, nah, not once. Never. I ain't never seen nobody try to mess with him in the league. Like, not even, like, old linemen <laughs> pushing and talking trash. I've never seen any of that. So were, were people scared of him? Alodi? Yes. Alodi like five hundred pounds. Like, dude, nobody's messed with Alodi. There's not mess with him. Like that's a that is a fight you do not want to even have at all. Like, just to, the dude is the hugest. He's the biggest player I've ever played with, hands down. Probably the fastest pound for pound. Like, pound for pound, probably the fastest player in the NFL. Probably in NFL history. <laughs> like, you need to talk about pound for pound strongest, but let's talk about pound for pound fastest. Like, this dude is like 400 pounds, probably ran a five, five yep. and one. Yeah, like, that's ridiculous. It's literally ridiculous. So, yeah, I'm going to go with Haloti. What's the best Haloti not a play in your mind that you were on the field for at, at Oregon? Oh man, uh, I'm not sure who it was. Maybe we were playing Washington, and I think they had Isaiah Steinback or Isaiah mm -hmm. somebody quarterback, and he went from D tackle, and it was like a bootleg or something, or like a quarterback rollout, and he went from nose tackle and chased this dude that runs a four four all the way to the sideline, and I was just like. What did I just see? <laughs> and I'm a freshman, freshman. Like, I just get to college. So, this is like college football, first taste, first year. And I see this 400-pound man just chase this uh, elusive quarterback to the sideline from over the center, <laughs> which was crazy. So, yeah, that's what I knew. I love it. Real. I, I love it. Uh, TJ Ward, thank you so much for coming on. This is football, man. Talk to you soon. No problem. Thanks for having me.